So what happens when you have the words for something, but you don't have the framework to understand those words? Let me give you some examples to see what I mean. Like you have the ability to identify numbers, but you have no concept of math to make sense of them. What about this? You can identify letters, right? You know your ABCs, but you lack any concept of phonetics and grammar, syntax, definitions to make those letters make sense. Or what about when we have scientific words like neutrino and atomic weight, but like me, you lack no, you have no framework to explain how those words even relate to each other. So what happens to a society when that has words like good and evil, virtue and vice, shame and honor, guilt and forgiveness, but we've lost the framework to understand what those words mean and how they fit together. See, as a society, we still have those words, but we've lost the framework to fully comprehend those words. And an increasingly post-modern, post-Christian, post-everything kind of world that we live in now, we have words and emotional instincts about right and wrong, goodness and evil, guilt and forgiveness, but we've lost the framework to understand them. Now, there's all kinds of implications of how that begins to unravel a society. I've got time today to just address one of them. Wilford McClay, in his essay, The Strange Persistence of Guilt, he argues that even though the framework of religion is in decline, guilt is powerfully present as it's ever been. Listen to some of the words he says. He says, if anything, the word persistence understates the matter. Guilt has not merely lingered, it's grown. It's even metastasized into an ever more powerful and pervasive element in the life of the contemporary West. He goes on to say, and yet the rich language that we formerly used to define it has withered and faded. And what that means is the means of containing the effects of guilt, let alone obtaining relief from guilt, have become ever more elusive. To state it simply, he's, what he's getting at is people have shucked off religion, but guilt has stuck around, and it's even grown into a cancer that's eating us alive. And now no one has the slightest idea of how to find mercy and grace and forgiveness. We've removed religion, but sin and guilt has stayed, and now there's no formula for redemption. Now, before you go thinking that Wilfred McClay is some pastor writing this essay, he's not. He's actually a distinguished professor of history at the University of Oklahoma who writes for well-respected intellectual publications that only nerds read. He's not even writing... Hold on, just so we make sure. I read the article, right? Okay? Right? So I'm, that's self-condemning right there. He's not writing from a distinctly Christian worldview. He's merely writing about what he sees happening in our culture, and he's offering some insightful advice. Picking up the same idea, David Brooks over at the New York Times, who's an op-ed writer, he makes a similar argument. Listen to what he's saying. This is the New York Times. Okay? Sin is a stain, a weight, and a debt. But at least religious religions offer people a path from self-reflection and confession to atonement and absolution. Mainstream culture has no clear path upward from guilt, either for individuals or 
guilt. And so what you get is scapegoating, shaming, and condemnation. What he's saying is that left on their own, without a pathway forward to find forgiveness and redemption, people figure some other way around it. And so some people try to find freedom from their guilt by playing the victim, right? You ever met people like this? Who nothing is ever their fault. Everything is always someone else's problem. And do you see what's going on there? When you make everyone else the enemy, you're shifting the blame. You make other people the enemy so that you don't have to bear the moral responsibility for your guilty conscience. Or some people, they just live with the constant sense of guilt like a moderate chronic pain. Now, it's not enough to crush them on a daily basis, but every step, every moment of life is lived in pain. And the impact of of that chronic guilt pain over a lifetime leads to despair and hopelessness. Today, Psalm 30 says to us, I've got good news. Guilt has a remedy. There's a path for redemption. There's a way to deal with our cancer. There's hope to stop playing the victim and to actually take responsibility. There's freedom and forgiveness from the chronic pain of our guilt. Psalm 130 is going to teach us three things this morning about God's grace for our guilt. First, we're going to see a prayer for grace. Second, we're going to see the provision of grace. And finally, he'll conclude the song with a praise for grace. So let's look at verse 1 and 2 together. He says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. See, right away, we see the psalmist in a place of desperation. Did you feel that? He's in the depths. Now, we don't have Hebrew ears anymore, but if a Hebrew were hearing this today, he would have heard that word depth, and it would have triggered a sense of urgency and severity. In fact, when you look at it in the original Hebrew, the word depth is the first word in the song, and it's there for emphasis. He wants to say depths, and so right away you know Oh man, this guy is not in a good place. In Hebrew imagery, the word depth brings to mind being submerged beneath the depths of the seas. You know, the Israelites were not a seafaring people. In fact, they feared the sea. For them, the sea represented chaos and judgment. It would bring to mind destruction and devastation and death. See, the depths represented a dark, death-like situation separated from the living God of light. The depths, another way to think about it, were everything contrary to God himself. He's saying, I am down deep in the Marianas Trench. You know about this trench? It's the deepest place that we know of. It's 36,000 feet below sea level. That's deep. Did you know it's so deep that you could take Mount Everest and place it in the trench, and its peak would not surface the water. In fact, there'd be 7,000 more feet before you reach sea level. Tallest place in the world can fit in the deepest place in the ocean with 7,000 feet of room. Now we feel that. That's what depths mean. He's saying, that's where I am. So this isn't a calm, like bedside prayer. Oh, Lord, help me. He's crying out urgently, begging God to hear his voice and his plea for mercy. Now, mercy. The only reason you beg for mercy is what? 
when you've offended someone, right? There's, there's guilt there. There's a reason you need mercy. His offense is against God, and that's why he's going to God. Oh, Lord, God, hear my prayer for mercy. See, you need mercy and forgiveness from who? The one to whom you've offended. Everybody knows that. Now, as he begins his prayer, do you hear any excuses, any caveats, any? Now, God, here's what really happened. No, no explanations, no bargaining like, God, if you forgive me today, I'll do better next time. Anyone prayed that prayer? I have. There's none of that going on. Just a pleading confession for help, deliverance, and mercy. See, sin has dragged him down to the depths, and now his only hope is crying out to God. He's describing this immense, weighty feeling of guilt. Now, when I talk about guilt, we got to define it because we might all have 30 different ideas of what guilt means. When I say guilt, I'm not primarily referring to feeling guilty, okay? When I say guilt, we're talking about forensic guilt, something that's either true or false, regardless of what you think or feel about it. It's more of a, uh, isn't that the thing about truth, though? If something is true, it either is true or it isn't right? There's not a, there's a wiggle room here. If something is really true, it's true regardless of how you feel about it. The guilt we're talking about is being guilty, not feeling guilty. Do you see the difference there? One is a, a state that happens when you do something wrong. You have guilt. Now, you may feel guilty about it, or you may not feel guilty about it, but there's still guilt there because there's been an offense See, he's not asking God to help him feel better about himself. This is a confession. He's confessing that he has guilt. Hear my prayers for mercy, God. And because the psalmist is, in fact, guilty, he also has the accompanying feelings of guilty, and all of that is represented in being in the depths, and now he's calling out to God. So why is he calling out to God? First, because all sin, and therefore all guilt, is actually and ultimately against God. Now that may confuse some of us. Let me give you a good example. In Psalm 51, we see this really clearly. See, the situation of Psalm 51 is is pretty well known. David has just committed some serious sins, like adultery and murder, both of which affect other people, right? Don't they? Murder? It really impacts somebody else, right? And when David confesses his sin, listen to what he says in verse 3 and 4. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now you're thinking, wait a minute. Didn't he coerce a woman to sleep with him, get her pregnant, and then have her husband killed? And you're right. That's exactly what he did. Now he certainly has some apologies to make right? But in an ultimate and exclusive sense, his sin, and therefore our sin as well, is ultimately an offense against God. When you wrong others, yes, you've wronged them, and there's an offense against them, but there's also an offense against God because they bear his image. And when you mess with his children, you're also messing with him. If you hurt my kids, you don't just have a problem with my kids, you have a problem with me too. Do you see that? That's how it works. Dealing with our guilt 
is an offense against God. But it's also not primarily about forgiving yourself either. You've probably heard this in our psychological age, that the best way to get rid of guilt is to forgive yourself. And if you notice, what, when you only have to forgive yourself, who does it remove from the equation? It removes God completely from the equation. This subtly teaches that when you sin, the resultant guilt can just be removed by forgiving yourself. In this way, Psalm 51 would be written like this, against me and me only have I sinned. Now, when you, your mistakes and your sin are primarily an offense, when, when those are against you, you essentially make yourself God, right? You're the one who needs to be appeased for your own sin. Now, what I'm not saying is that we don't need to allow ourselves to move past the past. You've got to move past the past, but you can't move past it until it's actually been forgiven. You can't forgive yourself till you've actually received forgiveness. There's a process and you can't put yourself before God. Ultimate forgiveness, the beginning and the end, begins with God. See, when God forgives you, now you're actually free to move on. Now you're actually free to forgive yourself. Now you are free to let the past stay in the past. That's why the psalmist is going to God for mercy. He's offended him, he's offended God, and God alone has the right to forgive him. Now, the second reason he goes to God is because God has historically delivered his people out of the depths, right? So he needs, to, he needs forgiveness from God, but he also realizes God has historically shown himself to be a God of compassion and a deliverer. See, the depths bring to mind that milestone moment when they were delivered out of slavery in Egypt. If you remember the story back in Exodus, after the plagues, Pharaoh finally let the people of God go and they walked right out of Egypt. But after a day or so, the Pharaoh realized that he just let all of his free labor go. Economy's going to crash. So he rallies the chariots to go back after him. Filled with rage, he sets out to either kill them or enslave them again. Now the Israelites, as they're walking, find themselves kind of pinched in. They've got their enemies at their back, and in front of them is the Red Sea. And as you know the story, Moses prays and asks God, like, what do we do right now? We're pinned in. We have nowhere to go. And as God answered his prayer, the seas part, and it allows the Israelites to cross through on dry ground. And as they're making their way to deliverance, they had to go through the depths of the sea. They had their faith to know that God would bring them out to the other side. Can you imagine? Put yourself there for a moment. You're walking through, it's amazing, but you're about halfway through this thing and you're seeing a wall of water on your right and your left. And you're thinking, if this goes down, it's gonna swallow me up right along with it, right? Doubt creeps in. How long can he really hold the ocean apart? Meanwhile, the Egyptians are coming right down behind them. But by faith, it enabled them to cross through the sea, out of the depths, onto the other side where they were finally set free. See, God rescued them out of the depths. If you go back and look in Exodus 15, there's a song that Moses sings, and he talks about how God has delivered his people out of the depths. See, this word depths carries a lot of meaning for the Israelite. He also prays, Lord, let your ears be attentive to my pleas for mercy. See, a Hebrew also, his ears would have been going off and saying, wait a minute, that's not the first time I've heard that prayer. 
If you go back to 2 Chronicles, when the temple was dedicated, you realize that was the exact prayer that was prayed when the temple was dedicated. See, this was another milestone moment for Israel. See, the temple represented God's plan for redemption and atonement at that time. Sacrifices would pay the price for sin and allow a holy God to live with an unholy people. And this prayer asked God to be attentive to their cries for mercy. See, the psalmist isn't crying out into the abyss. He's hanging on the promises of God and his past faithfulness. In response to their prayer, God told them, if you would humble yourselves, repent of your sin, and cry out to me, I will hear your prayer, and I will forgive your sins. He's banking on God to do it again. See, to us, these references to Israel's history may seem obscure and distant, but you have to remember that these are milestone moments in their history. It formed and shaped them like July 4th formed and shaped this country, like September 11th did. I can just say those dates, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. For an Israelite, they hear these words, and they're going, oh, yes, I know those phrases. I know what those words mean. He knows that when people humble themselves and repent and cry out for forgiveness, God responds. That's what he's doing here. This is what Paul was getting at in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Paul writes, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. When you truly grieve your sin and mourn the fact that you're guilty before a holy God, it's going to produce hope in your life, not despair. Salvation, not damnation. Life, not regret. But, Paul says, if you have a worldly, shallow grief, it produces death. See, this kind of shallow grief is just kind of giving a nod to sin. It's like saying, yeah, you know, I, I've done some bad things, but not too bad. I'm better than that guy over there. And hey, everybody makes mistakes, right? It's kind of a flippant attitude towards our sin. That kind of worldly sorrow might feel sorrowful, might even include some tears, maybe even go as far as self-pity, but it never goes the distance to repentance. And that's where it has to go. See, talking about guilt this morning is not meant to manipulate, ma manipulate you or to make you feel bad. Our hope this morning in talking about it is to actually help you deal with the problem that, let's face it, you already know is there, right? Ignoring it or wishing it away doesn't work. Trying to make up for it with good works doesn't work either, right? It's really just another way to stay busy and ignore the problem. The only way to deal with the problem is to address it and go to the one who can actually do something about your guilt. So let me ask you this morning. Do you believe that your sin and guilt creates a pit that you cannot climb out of on your own? The answer to that question will determine if you've got godly grief or worldly grief. If you think it's bad but not that bad, that you can work it out on your own, that's what Paul says is worldly grief. You don't need God. You just need to pick yourself up and get out of the pit. But if you believe your sin has created a chasm, a pit, whatever word picture you want to use that you can't climb out of on your own, then you're actually in a really good place. 
Another way to think about it is, what is your most urgent prayer? See, he's praying a prayer of urgency and dependency. Asking for God. He, he's saying, if God does not show up, I'm lost. I'm done with. What is your most urgent prayer? The psalmist is crying out from the depths, and he's praying and asking God for grace. He needs to be freed from his guilt, so he begs for mercy. He's asking God to do something about it so that he can get out of the pit and actually live guilt-free. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what your life would look like if you could live guilt-free? If you knew that your guilt was taken care of for good. The psalmist demonstrates the first step, which is praying and asking for grace. Now let's look at the second step in God's provision. Verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. He goes on to say, O Lord, if you marked iniquity, who could stand? Now this word iniquity is important. We don't use it anymore. It refers to the tendency in humanity to take the good things that God gives us and twist them for our own selfish purposes and needs. See, iniquity highlights the fact that it's not enough just for us to turn our backs on God. It's us throwing a temper tantrum on the way out and destroying anything in our past. That's what the word iniquity means. Now, what does it mean to mark our sin? This is asking, what would happen if God counted and tallied and marked every sin against us without the possibility of mercy, grace, and forgiveness? See, to mark a sin is to keep a record of it. So think scorecard or a scoreboard. And if you're anything like me, not even the green monster is big enough to tally all of my sins. And here's the reality. God does know them all. We're not fooling him. We're not hiding from him. There is actually a record of our sin. And the psalmist knows that. But he also knows somehow God forgives. Somehow he's not counting those marks against us. Somehow he doesn't hold that record against his people. He doesn't know how it is that God can know our sin truly and fully and yet not hold it against us. He just knows somehow in God's grace that he doesn't. He doesn't have the benefit that we have of looking back from the cross. It's like my cell phone. I have no idea how this thing works. I have no clue what's on the inside. I'm not even really sure what all goes into making an app or even making calls. It feels like magic. I can call people on the other side of the planet and we're talking. There's no wires. There's no, it's, it's crazy, right? I don't have to know how it works to know that it works. And that's kind of where the, the psalmist is. He doesn't know exactly how it is that a holy and loving God can, can, can take sin seriously and also forgive. He just knows God forgives and I'm going to bank on that. He just knows God's loving and just. He's merciful and holy. But he knows if he comes to God with a humble and repentant heart, he will find forgiveness. Now, for us, we know how it works. We have the benefit of the New Testament. We know that it's Jesus that makes it possible for God to forgive us. Look how Paul says it in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. It's great. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You were apart from God. God made you alive together with him. Listen, having forgiven us all our trespasses, here's how he did it. 
by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How did he cancel it? He nailed it to the cross. That's how he gets rid of the record against us. That's how he doesn't mark iniquities. There is a record of our debt and sin. It was tallied, each single sin, every one of them. See, God's justice and holiness demands that evil be dealt with, not merely ignored. Our trespasses, sin, iniquity can be forgiven because God took our record and he nailed it to the cross. See, Jesus was innocent. When he went up there, he didn't have a record against him. So he took ours. He had no record, but he was willing to die for our record of debt. He became so identified with our record on that cross that Paul says it was like he became sin itself. So when Jesus was nailed to the cross, your record and my record of debt was nailed right up there with him. See, because God is holy, he does mark iniquity. But for those in Christ, Jesus took your marks. He said, you bear them no more, they're mine. And it was counted on him. All of our sin was placed on Jesus when he went to the cross. That's why our record of debt can be canceled. It's actually dealt with, not just merely forgotten. That's why we can be forgiven. That's how we move from death to life. That's how our guilt is dealt with. That's grace. That's provision. See, grace is getting more than you deserve. In fact, it's actually better than that. It's getting better than you deserve. It's unmerited favor. It's not something you earn like a paycheck. When you get your paycheck at the end of the week or the month or however you get paid, it's not like they've given you a gift. You've actually earned it, right? Grace is not like that. It's a gift that you don't earn. Wilfred McClay, the guy I referenced earlier, he says this, guilt is crafty a trickster, a chameleon, capable of disguising itself, hiding out, changing its size and appearance, even its location, all the while managing to persist and deepen. This guy's got guilt nailed, doesn't he? But here's what grace is. It's the only thing, the only thing that can remove that kind of guilt is grace that is far more reaching, far more determined to go to the depths and root it out. See, guilt can't evade disguise or hide itself from grace. Where sin and guilt go deep, grace goes deeper. Don't miss that progression. The psalmist finds himself in this pit. So he humbles himself, he admits his need, confesses his guilt, and he cries out for help. He realizes grace and and forgiveness can only be found in God. And God can forgive because he's the one who's offended when we sin. That's why he goes to him. So he begs for mercy, trusting in the character of God. And what I love about our psalmist is even though he doesn't have everything figured out, he goes to God. You don't have to have everything figured out to go to him. I hear so many people saying, I've got to get it all figured out. Then I can go to God and see what he's all about. No, no, no. You can go to him. Right now, with limited understanding, he will receive you. The psalmist has just enough faith that says, Lord, with you, there's abundant grace and forgiveness. And then he says something that kind of struck me as odd this week. 
He says, Lord, with you there is forgiveness, therefore you may be feared. And I thought, feared? I don't understand. How does the forgiveness of God lead to the fear of God? Did that catch anybody off guard when we were reading it? Most of us, if we're filling in the blanks there, would have said something like this. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be loved. With you there is forgiveness so that you may be worshipped. With you there is forgiveness, therefore you are adored. Or something like that. So what's the connection between forgiveness and fear? Remember, just a few weeks ago, we looked at the fear of the Lord. And we said to fear God is to revere and respect him. It's to understand that God has the right, because he's creator and we are creation, to form and shape what we think, feel, and do. God is our designer. He knows how we're wired best to flourish, right? See, whatever we fear the most, we give that person or that thing power and the right to tell us what to think, feel, and do. That's a powerful thing to give to somebody, isn't it? Right? Now, the reality is we give it to someone or something. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's other people. Maybe it's hobbies. Maybe it's your possessions. Maybe you said no one else is worth it but me. You're giving that power to someone or something. Let me ask you this. Are any of those other things able to properly handle that kind of power and responsibility? Who has the right to define you? Only God. That's what it means to fear him. It's to revere him and to respect him and to see him as he truly is. It's to realize that he is God and I am not. It's to orient one's life completely around God. See, if we fear God, we'll realize we can't just ignore our sin and pretend like it's not there, right? Have you ever hurt someone or offended someone deeply and tried to pretend like nothing happened? You just tried to go back like, like nothing had ever happened? How does that work out? It doesn't, does it? Right? The impasse has to be dealt with for reconciliation to happen. So think about it. What's the purpose of God forgiving our sin? It's to have relationship with us. That's why he wants to forgive sin. That's why he was so determined to do something about it so that he could have relationship with us. That's why we begin every week with a call to worship saying, God has initiated grace to us. He's the one who wants relationship, not us. We weren't looking for God. He came looking for us. But relationship with God is on his terms, not ours. See, when you're God, guess what you get to do? You get to set the terms. He's God. And he actually knows what leads to our thriving, our flourishing, and our joy. He knows everything about you. So he is in the best possible position to show us what will make our hearts sing. When we really see what he's done, when we really see the links that he's gone to forgive us, it will produce in us a holy reverence and a gratitude for what he's done. You won't take grace for granted. It'll make you realize just how amazing grace really is. See, the fear of the Lord doesn't lead to terror, but it actually draws us in. See, when you've been forgiven, 
guess what? There's nothing left to be afraid of. All that's left is an immense gratitude and love and respect and adoration for God that the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. He lifts, he lifts us out of the depths with a, provi- uh, a provision of grace so that he can draw us to himself. Let's keep going. Let's look at verse five and six. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Did you catch the transition? From the depths of despair, now he's on the heights of hope. There's a longing and a waiting, but something has changed. The imagery has gone from depths of despair to the tower of the watchman. Did you see that change? If there was a song, it would be a key change. We've gone from the minor key of lament to the major key of hope. He's experienced forgiveness and reconciliation, and yet, at the same time, there's still a waiting and a watching. So it begs the question, what is he waiting for? What is there to wait for when you've been forgiven? Now, this brings us to the biblical reality of past, present, and future tenses of our redemption. We've talked about this before, but it's worth saying again. The provision of God's grace actually has a progressive nature to it. Let me explain. The first is, I will be redeemed. So when you believe in God's love and his offer of forgiveness, you're forgiven and their guilt and sin has been taken care of. If any of you have placed your faith in Christ, you can say, truly, I have been saved. It's in the past. It's done. The penalty for your sin is paid. The grip, the hold on that debt of your guilt, that all that you had has been removed. That's to say, I have been redeemed. It's a state. It's true. It's done. Now, in the present tense, every day we live between that moment when we were saved and that moment when either we die or Jesus comes back, that we're living in this present tense reality of our redemption. God is actively redeeming us. We are being redeemed. He is progressively, the Bible uses language like this, day by day transforming us from one degree of glory to another. It's incremental. Change happens over time. We start walking in his ways and we learn how to actually live guilt-free. God has taken care of the guilt. Now we learn what does it look like to live as free people. You begin to rethink everything and that takes time. It doesn't mean you're working for your salvation. It means you're working out your salvation. God has done something real in your life and now you're working it out. You are God's beloved child the second that you're forgiven. You're adopted into his family in that moment. And the rest of your life, you're learning and growing and experiencing what it means to be that beloved and adopted child, right? Adoption happens the moment the judge says, it's done, they're yours. Every day after that is living as that beloved adopted child. And then... We look forward to the day when hope and our faith become sight. We're looking forward to the day when the work is totally, completely, finally, ultimately finished. When the mending of the world takes place. When we're finally set free from even the very presence and inkling of sin. When all creation is restored, renewed, and redeemed. And that hope is what he's looking forward to. He's hoping on that day 
It's why Christians can endure trial and suffering because we know a day is coming when it all will go away. It's why we can have genuine hope that things will get better because God has promised they will. This psalmist is waiting with an eagerness like the night guard looking and longing for that first light of morning to arrive. You ever had to pull an all-nighter? The night shift for the watchman's difficult. No sleeping, no nodding, right? You're most vulnerable for attack at night under the cover of darkness. A sleeping guard is dangerous to the city, right? Everybody's depending on you to stay awake. So you watch and you wait. Everyone's sleeping and you're listening to the, top, the clock tick. And as you wait, what happens? That hope and that longing for bed starts to grow. You just can't wait for first light, for the door to swing open, for the next shift to start so you can go home and rest. That's the posture of the believer, longing and waiting and watching for morning till the Son of God appears and lights up the night to make all things new. That's the hope for redemption. That's what it means to live guilt-free. It means to pray for grace. It means to receive his provision of grace. Finally, let's look at these last verses to see the praise of grace. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. These last two verses, the psalmist can't hold it in, and it feels like a praise song, doesn't it? He beckons his brothers and sisters in Israel to join in the chorus. See, when you've experienced something so life-giving, you can't keep it to yourself. You have to tell someone about it. He's found redeeming grace because of God's redeeming love, and he wants Israel to join in hoping in God as well. See, hope in God, he can tell them hope in God because his love isn't fickle, it's not wayward, it's reliable. It's consistent. It's guaranteed. He's saying hope in God because redemption is not merely sufficient or just about adequate. It is abundant, bountiful, lavish, and grand. Do you hear that? He says he has plentiful redemption. He's got enough to go around. His love is steadfast and plentiful. He can be hopeful because he's confident. He has experienced freedom from guilt, and now he's walking in that loving, reverent relationship with God, and he's saying, you don't want to miss out on this. Israel, hope in God, join with me. And when he says that God has steadfast love, he uses that special Hebrew word, hesed, which is his unconditional, forever kind of love. We've read the Jesus Storybook Bible to our kids. I think we're in our fifth version of that book because kids like to rip out the pages. And the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones describes it in her book, she's, when she's talking about this hesed kind of love from God, she says that God has and never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. It's the best translation I've ever heard of that word. The psalmist has been forgiven and he's looking forward. And that's important for us, right? Because guilt is all about the past, isn't it? Guilt is about something you've done or didn't do, something you said or didn't say that you did with an ill motive and a wicked desire. Guilt by its very nature is connected to the past, isn't it? Guilt constantly rehearses and relives the past. But hope, 
Nope, hope is different. Hope is by its very nature what? Forward-looking. And when you know you've been forgiven, you're free now to forgive yourself, to stop looking back, and to finally start looking forward. That's hope. That's new life. That's freedom from your past, freedom from your guilt. You can now move forward. And what's more, as you're moving forward, the joy that comes with it bursts into song and you can't help but tell others about it. God is coming with his redemption. And when we become a forgiven people, we will become a hopeful people, longing, eagerly awaiting that final fulfillment of that hope. So friends, even though the night seems long and there are days when it feels like it's never going to end, but morning is coming and the time is already determined, it will come. See, for the Christian, grace and hope is not a feeling, it's forensic. For us, we have evidence to know that we will be forgiven, we will receive grace, we have the objective evidence of the cross and the resurrection. See, the cross is our evidence that sin was decisively dealt with. You don't have to guess about that. The resurrection is evidence that the curse of sin and death has been vanquished. And that's why the writer of Hebrews can say this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. When you're in the pit, you can reach out to God with confidence that he will redeem you from all of your iniquity. Where sin abounded, grace abounds all the more. That's the good news of the gospel. Though our sin is great, grace is greater. 